Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, this is the PRC Show. I am your host, Paul Cooley, and thank you for listening. It is currently, oh, 59, 60 degrees in Pittsburgh, a little cloudy, it was a little rainy this morning, light rain, wet out, but uh, decent weather otherwise. Today on the show, we're going to have Eric talk about the marathon. We're going back into the battle cry of freedom, also a new, really well, not a new song, but another a great musical break we're going to have. I also have some new uh, music I'm going to play in between. And, uh, yeah, this is a good show. It's going to be fun. You're going to like it. So, um, just saw an awesome Penguins game last night. I don't know much about hockey. I mean, I know a little bit, um, but I'm more of a baseball, basketball, football fan, I guess, in that order. But maybe hockey's number three now. Pens going to the further in the playoffs. They need to win four more games to get to the Stanley Cup. You know, I think the reason why I don't like hockey that much is because I could never ice skate. Never learned how to ice skate. Don't know how to roller skate. I still don't understand how people do it because when I put my feet down, I got the skates on. You push forward, but then it slides. And then the back foot goes the other way. So when I was a kid, my mom tried to teach me to roller skate. Didn't, couldn't do it. And there'd be these skating parties, you know, when we were in grade school. And I never went. And I always felt terrible about it. But I couldn't do it. And, you know, if something's hard, I'm not going to continue to try. I'm going to give up. Which is not true. I did try, but I just, for some reason, I couldn't get it. Um, My wife's really good at it. I mean, she's like almost... I bet you if she committed to it as a younger person, she could be like in the... Like a, a amateur figure skater. Or at least like one of those like Lion King type things. Because she can like go backwards and side to side and swivel and... I don't know if she could do a, tri- a triple toe loop. Uh, I can jump high, so you think, you know, maybe if I could try, if I could do it, I could maybe do like a double toe loop. I don't know. So the Pirates, you know, they are not doing as great. They're okay. They're hanging in there. The Cubs are on pace to win 130 games. I took my one-year-old again to his second Pirate game this year, and uh, it was fun, except the Pirates lost. But he went through nine innings. I was really proud of him. He did see a home run for the Pirates. He did see Andrew McCutcheon drop a fly ball. And then the next guy, Ben Zobris, hit a home run. I don't know if he knew the gravity of the situation, how depressing that was. But, you know, can I tell you something, guys? Having a one-year-old isn't that bad. It's pretty fun, actually. Well, it can be. He's a pretty good kid, and um, I do like him. I would say... The positives outweigh the negatives so far. And he does whine and cry sometimes, and that can be annoying. But I have a pretty high uh, annoying tolerance. So I work in an emergency department. You know, I'm a nurse. I've been a nurse for a while. So I hear a lot of that. But he did like the game, I think. He likes looking at all the people. The bases were loaded for the Pirates at one point. And he was really paying attention. I was trying to get him to focus. And he was watching... He could see everybody was watching the game. He was pointing and babbling. You know, one-year-olds don't really articulate a lot. He babbles. He says about, I don't know, he maybe knows about seven words or something. So, you know, it's hard to have meaningful communication with him. But the Pirates did not get any runs out of that inning, and I don't know if he really understood what was going on, but that was pretty depressing. Otherwise, though, if you're thinking of having a child, you know, definitely reconsider. But if you, you know, think about it, uh, so far, it's it's pretty fun having a one-year-old. I guess it gets worse later. I don't know. Um, but I have been... I sound a little amped. I had a... I've been drinking more gourmet coffee. Uh, chugged like a 16-ounce cup a, a little bit ago. 
And I have been requiring more and more coffee as I get older to feel, just to feel normal, <laughs> just to feel up and peppy and happy. I mean, it seems like with alcohol too, I just need more and more of it just to get a buzz. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. But I have been drinking scotch more than beer lately. But um, yeah, I've really been liking coffee more, have really been uh, needing it. Like not a day goes by when I don't have a cup. And I don't want to be one of these de- people that are dependent. That, oh, I need my coffee. God, I can't get, I can't start. Or like, you know, you just see people and that you can tell, they'll tell you if they don't have their coffee, they're like a demon, you know. Um, and speaking of dependence, my God, the people doing the heroin coming into the ER, for Pete's sake, what is going on, people? I have had in the last week, not a shift goes by when I myself, my assignment deals with a heroin overdose. Now, that's partly because of the the pod or the, um, the work area I'm in, but, you know, they usually come in uh, thrown up or they're barely conscious. We give them, uh, give them some med, like a Narcan uh, to bring them, to stop the heroin from suppressing their drive to breathe. That's what an overdose is. You get so, depresses your nervous system so much that you don't breathe. And then, without breathing... You don't get oxygen to your brain and your cells, and you die. So anyways, uh, Narcan's like a miracle drug because it blocks the opioid receptors that puts you in that depression. But man, these people have been coming in, and a lot of them have been using for years. And I, you know, some of this heroin's cut with fentanyl, another strong drug, and I've never overdosed before, but I overdosed today. This one guy overdosed in a... Well, I shouldn't say... Well, he, he, he overdosed in a... He was at work using, and he overdosed at work. <laughs> and it's not funny. It is not funny. I mean, hey, we brought him back to life. Um, and hopefully, you know, he'll his he's gonna be fine. Is um, he don't he didn't have any brain damage or anything like that. But it it is fascinating to me of uh, how many people are doing heroin or abusing it. It was not around my age group or peer group when I was growing up, but people right under me, 34, 30, under 34, it seems like it was in their high schools. I'm talking, reg, you know, um, white suburb Pittsburgh is who I'm seeing some of these folks come in, or most of them actually. Anyways, uh, we're going to talk about the marathon uh, and how that went. I have a little pre-tape that I'm going to share with my friend Eric. We had a, I had a great weekend with him. Thank you, Eric, for coming down. Um, we went to a pirate game the Friday before the game. Pirates won. It was a great game. I saw some friends on Saturday, then did the marathon on Sunday. So, you know, let's just get into that talk with him, and then we'll follow up. Okay, so we're recording this the day before the marathon. This is going to be my sixth marathon. Eric, this is going to be your third. third. Why are you doing the marathon? Well, I have... Uh, running the marathon. Yeah. Running a marathon. 26.2 miles. Most people think this is stupid. And I sort of agree, even though I'm doing it for the sixth time. Yeah. 
Uh, I am thinking it's stupider and stupider as I go along, but I am a, I'm a pretty competitive person and um, you know really got into uh, running just in the past few years and um, it's allowed me to continue to compete against um, not only myself but with other people and you know I do really enjoy beating other people even though I'm nowhere close to winning but uh, just the feeling of like, so you think you're gonna beat me tomorrow I think uh, I think if I were healthy uh, I would have a, a much well, better shot what do you have a broken leg what's I, your deal I actually do have a uh, stress fracture. You know my, what? Uh, He's told me about this audience, and um, I think I want to see the X-rays. But uh, last year, last year we ran this, and it was four hours and fifteen minutes. Both of us. I ran it in four thirteen, and I you ran it in four sixteen. That's right. Which is pretty remarkable because we didn't even run near each other. But that's very very close. I feel like he trained a lot more. I feel like he's gonna beat me this time, which is fine. I'm fine with. I have a newborn baby. He has two older children, so it's a lot easier to run with those. Two and five, just <laughs> to be clear. Um, but don't you feel like, okay, you have the stress fracture. Um, do you feel like it's it's a little bit too much, though, running a marathon? That like you, are you, is there, What do you have to prove? You've done it three times. Well, this will be your third time. Yeah. You feel it's a bit... Well, I mean, I mean... I, you know, it's that competitive drive. I just want right. to beat my uh, previous time. I want to get, you know, what I would consider a good time. And you don't feel like total death the days after that you can, it doesn't prevent you from wanting to do another one. Uh, no, I mean, I think um, it's, you know, it, it's not comfortable the next right. couple of days, but, you know, you, you know, I ran, um, I think last year, the week afterwards, and I ran like... Yeah, I mean, I feel pretty much the same way. Yeah. Now, And so, um, why, w when you tell people, this, I'm interested in this, because when I talk about doing the marathon, I think people think I'm being a show-off. Mm -hmm. Oh, you running the marathon. Oh, oh, dropping that in, bragging. And I, we're not fast. That's a slow time. 422 is a 10-minute pace. That's nothing to be like, I actually think it's... You shouldn't be ashamed of it because you're still running 26 miles, but it's it's not fast. It doesn't qualify for any races. Do you get um, when you tell people what reactions do you get? You know, I think it's a it's a variety. It's not like everybody has the same reaction. You know, I think some people are that's you're crazy. You're like you, yeah, that's what you a lot have of people a say. A lot of you have something wrong with you if you want to do that. And then uh, and then there are people that are um, I think somewhat impressed uh, that. They're like, oh wow! You, doesn't that kind of feel cool too? You do feel you a little do. bit oh, like, yeah. yeah oh I'm, yeah. Do you like I'm better than you? I mean, I don't think that, but there's a little bit there's of that. A, like, there's a lot. There's a lot of things pointing towards in that direction. It, and it's <laughs> and it's also like, oh, you. There's a sense that you can achieve things I can't, or you can do things. I get that impression. They're giving me that vibe of, oh wow. But really, I don't even think it's that hard because it's just. Yeah, I get a lot. Of, I get a lot of people that oh, I could never do that, which is not true because to me, I have a very, very. I've said this before, maybe not on the show. I have a low pain tolerance, and I really don't like exercise. I know this is gonna sound crazy. I don't like exercising. I don't like lifting weights. I don't like running. Is non concentration in my opinion, and uh, it's slow. So you just have to be committed to it. Really, I think it's more commitment to the same thing. But um, I do get people. I had this happen the other day. That's why I asked. When I, I don't know how I 
said it, but the guy thought I was being really snobby and he made a big deal about it. Um, but uh, how do you think things are going to go tomorrow? I mean, do you feel like you're going to... Well, uh, I, I actually uh, haven't run all week. Uh, so this is like the first yeah. time I haven't run in a while. But that's what, that's what we're supposed to do. Well, no, I mean, you're supposed to run a little bit in the last week, but I've really taken it right. easy and been icing my leg and doing a lot of other things to try to get ready. And so I, I feel much better today than, you know, I have in a few weeks. And so I'm hoping that, you know, my first step tomorrow isn't as painful. What's as your time going to be? If you predict, if, if, if a guy came in here and there might be a guy behind the door with a gun and he put a gun to your head and said, Eric, what is your time going to be? What would you tell him? Well, I would probably undersell to make sure that I could hit it. So that I would no, say like, but then he's going to say, you better run that time. Yeah. So, you well, would- I could run that time then. Okay. Well, so, this is a bad analogy. Okay. What do you think is going to be though? I think, uh, um, you know, I think four ten or lower. Okay, you think you do four ten? I did four thirteen last year, which I was very surprised at. Um, I am going to be very happy if I get four fifteen. I'm trying to get under four ten. <clears throat> I don't think that's going to happen, and I think I might be getting closer to four twenty, which I'm still happy with because to me, there's a mental thing about four twenty two. 422 yes, is 10 minutes exactly a mile. So if you did 421, you can say I do it under 10 minutes a right, mile. So right. I'm, I think I can, you can do say, that. I think you can say you did nine minute miles. Well, yeah, yeah, I did nine minute miles, which my plan is going to be to do my first. And we'll we'll play the rest of this show where we uh, have our recap. So my plan is to run the first half marathon at like a nine minute pace and the second half at a 10 minute pace come in at nine and a half pace average something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. that's going to be really i want to do the first 10 and slower then six miles of a medium pace then the last 10 oh god this is gonna be so long um you know at like a 10 minute pace because i'm gonna putz out you, what's your strategy well i think uh you know i think i'm gonna try to go out at um you know a nine minute pace and then i think you know there's the big hill and then we have to go slow over that. You got to go slow over that and then see how I feel after that and see if I can sort of, you know, before the hill is a time to go fast. I think, you know, when you're on the other, when you're on, I don't know what side. Yeah. Know. Right, right, right. It's uh, but yeah. you, it's like a slow downgrade. Right, right. So, um, we're, we'll catch up with this conversation tomorrow. It's going to, it might rain. That could screw things up. We'll talk about that. I have, um, seven paintings that I did on the wall. Um, and this is a audio podcast, but which one do you think is my best? And I want you to explain to people what your favorite one of mm-hmm. those are. Well, I, I would say there, there's one that is, uh, particularly in a style that I, that I like, and that's the, uh, the red one, um, which is, um, you know, it's very, uh, there's only a couple colors. It's like a red and then it sort of has a horizontal, um, line with a darker red. Um, it's like all red. <laughs> yeah. Like all red. It's, it's like different a shades of red. red. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, that's one my wife likes the most too. I think it, and, uh, reminds me of like, um, uh, like the horizon and sunsets and yeah, you know, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. That, um, okay. And I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen other artists do similar things and yeah. like, I'm, I'm always drawn to that sort of stuff. Yeah. I should, I should experiment more with that. I, the, the other ones have more busy work and, Let's just keep in mind, uh, listeners, that uh, I am not 
an artist at all. Like I'm not good at. It. I just kind of doodle. But I just want to get his impact, his influence. So, so. I, w- I would just ask, uh, what makes an artist an artist? Well, if it's in a museum, that that's the definition. I think so. <laughs> if it's so, in a if museum. you were to just carry that in with you to the like yes! the Louvre, you know how much that would be worth. If that no, was I mean it, like if you're just like walking in as a patron of the Louvre and you have that picture in your hand. No, it has to be. It Louvre. has to be sanctioned. There has to be some writing on it. Someone has to say somebody with a lot of money, or an art person. Then they have to say, "Oh, this guy, Jean Paul Cooley." Mm-hmm. I don't know why that I made that name up, but um, yeah, that that would be then it would be like I'd be considered an artist. Um, I, I, I would say that's a pretty high standard. I think uh, we got to have standards, Eric. Yeah, well, we need standards. That's a, that's a pretty high one. You can't I, just. Uh, there's a lot of artists out there that don't have their work in museums. What did you call them? Artists. <laughs> okay, we'll uh, recap on the uh, marathon tomorrow. Well, well, well. How did we do? How did we do? If you know me and you know Eric, you already know how we did. And again... Eric was uh, thinking he was going to beat me. Well, he didn't. But he has a very good excuse why. Turns out he has a fracture in his leg. A grade 3 stress fracture. And I got to give him credit. He ran a great race. He ran the first half very fast, like I did. Um, And he ended up finishing under 5 hours. Well under 5 hours, which is awesome. And, you know, it's times like these where I would love it if God existed. And I'm not saying he doesn't exist. But here's what I'd love to ask him when I die or even now. I would like to say, God, of all the people that have run marathons with a grade three stress fracture, what place did Eric come in? You know, because I see God as like this master... Well, he knows everything. So he has like a great database of everything. So it wouldn't even take him long. He would just be able to say, throughout human history, Eric came in 57th place out of like 4,000. Or, you know, who knows? Who knows how many people have run with that grade? Maybe he'd come in first. And then you could break down, well, what percentage of that all the people he ran? And he'd say, Eric finished in the top 5% in like world history. You know, so who knows? Maybe it's worse. But I think that's pretty damn impressive. I have a low pain tolerance, so he really powered through. I think Eric has a pretty high pain tolerance. I think he almost somewhat enjoys the pain to some degree. He's an odd bird. Um, he, I think he feels it makes him stronger. I don't know. He, he runs with this pain. I, I don't know how he does it. He gets massages that hurt some stuff. But let me tell you about how I did on my run. Because I have a little trick, and it might be considered cheating. And maybe it is. But I took what I call a Red Betty, (laughs) which is 30 milligrams of Sudafed. And I ran my fastest marathon. Unbelievable. I ran it in 4.06, which I never thought I'd get that that close, which means I should be able to break four hours next year if I can continue this. But I ran my first half marathon in 1.58 and the second half in the last three... in the last three years, the same basic time, which was like 2.06 or 2.08 or whatever, whatever that adds up to. But I took this 
Sudafed. And you know, Sudafed's what they make meth out of. I did have a little congestion, but not a lot, but I knew it would give me a little pep. I had to really pee at mile three. I broke off with Eric, so he was running ahead of me. I went to the bathroom because there was an open porta potty. When I come out of that porta potty, I was jazzed. I was amped. The Sudafed was kicking in. I started a sprint. Now, a 406 pace means my average, a 406 time is my average pace is 923. Well, miles three through eight, I ran at like a close to eight minute pace. I was flying. I was crying. I was euphoric. I was like on a meth high. I wanted to chase Eric and then I wanted to stay up with him. But when I saw him, I was like really pumped up and I saw him and I screamed out to him. I said, stop the lollygagging, buddy. And he was surprised to see me because, you know, I went to the bathroom and then I caught up with him around mile five. Then I started running faster than him. I figured I'd give him some encouragement because I thought he was going to beat me and I was going to die out. But I didn't. I kept going strong. Then I saw him around mile six, seven behind me. He was catching up. And then I was vulgar and I was like, you, you MF, forget to get away from me. Like I was like just crazy. The music was playing. I was feeling good. I was feeling really good about the race. I was telling you, I was tearing up during certain songs. Weezer's Blue Album, which is the 20th anniversary. I was playing some songs off that. I love that album. Um, Then when I got to mile 13, I started to just settle into my average pace. And I really need to thank my friend Matt and his son for coming out, Asher. That was key. Mile 18 is always horrible. 1920, I guess that's where I saw him. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Matt. God, you're such a loyal friend for coming out. I know it's annoying. But that really, really helped me. It gave me a little bit of encouragement to continue. Oh, God love them. So, um, and thank you, Eric, Matt, and my wife and son for putting up with all the training. I mean, it's a pain in the ass doing all this running. Um, so, I'm going to continue to do one marathon a year. I think I'm going to try to do more half marathons. But uh, anyways, how are you guys doing? Have you guys been running? doing yoga, lifting. I should start lifting. I mean, it would be good to then be able to fend fend for myself in like a fight situation, but I don't know. Weights are heavy, guys. Weights are heavy. All right, I'm going to play a song here by this band, Lower Dens, and the song's called Ondine, O-N-D-I-N-E. It's a great song. It's really, really good. And let me just read the, uh, oh, 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 hold on a second here. I got to take this phone call. Hold on, hold on. Hello? Yeah, hey, what's up? Okay, yeah, I'll be out in a second. All right, bye. Oh, good Lord. All right. Maybe I'll edit that out. If not. Hold on a minute. I'm going to play this song for you. Hold on. Well, I'm not going to edit that out. So you just have to listen to the mistakes. Escape from Evil is the album. Lower Dens is the band. And the little blip on the iTunes says, Baltimore-based ensemble's third album turns up the synths and the glam power for songs like Ondine, To Die in L.A., Your Heart Still Beating, and Electric Current, which sound like natural bedfellows with tracks by... Depeche Mode, New Order, OMD, Brian Ferry, and even David Bowie. Some credit 
is likely due to co-producer and mixer Chris Codley, Beach House. And that's what this album reminds me of big time, is a Beach House type album with a little more rock new wave. With er further input from Ariel Reichshade for smoothing over the band's previous rough edges and helping them achieve a heavenly patina. (laughs) P-A-T-I-N-A. Oh, my literacy is sometimes not great. All right. Love this song. It's a little underwhelming, understated. Really, really like it. I've had it in my head for the last month. I sing it a lot. It has a nice bass driving force, some nice, lush, clean guitars, great vocals, drums, but it's not wild or anything like that. All right, enough of me talking about it. Listen to it. Love it. Listen to it again. Maybe buy the album. If they ever come here, email me. We'll go see them live.
Antebellum. What does antebellum mean? Antebellum means before the war. I said I would define what antebellum means in the last episode, and it's amazing I didn't know that definition. Well, I knew antebellum America meant before the Civil War, but the actual definition of antebellum means before. I guess bellum is war. We're not going to get into the word. We're done. Okay. (laughs) Continuing on with McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. So the first chapter, he talks about, you know, the U.S. Is, has a booming economy. He mentions how the um, it's changing, too. In the North, it's becoming more industrial. Workers are... Um, people are becoming workers. There's, like, this relationship between apprentice and journeyman that is changing to employer-employee. More on this later. Hopefully, we can dig into that. Um, that's a whole other subject, really, but... He he credits that the the U.S. workers are more um, able to change with this as opposed to some European workers, and that uh, the education is much better, which I thought was interesting. Saying that particularly in the North, it's like ninety nine percent literate; in the South, it's eighty percent literate. Um, this is among the white population. Obviously, slaves uh, don't have much education. But he says U.S. literacy is better than Europe, and uh, the North is basically compared to Denmark and Sweden as the best uh, education-wise. There's a ton of schools and education facilities in New England, more than any other place on the planet, and uh, they should be given credit for outdoing um, Britain and the Northwestern Europe. Um, I would like to get in this idea, though, of uh, how people... This is McPherson saying, though, that... People are opposing wage labor. The, the whole ter- the whole idea and term, wage slavery, is uh, mentioned. And this is a new concept. And this c- coincides, again, with the growth of the Industrial Revolution and the maturing of capitalism. But would people like to talk about that? <laughs> it's probably boring, but I think it's interesting. Um, and guess what, guys? Ugh, we're going to have to marginalize a group again like they always are, this podcast is going to marginalize, yes, I'm guilty, the Native Americans. But that's what McPherson does. But let's just at least mention it. You know, before 1850, 85,000 Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, Chickasaw, and Seminole were forcibly removed from their lands. Not really going to talk about much more. The Native Americans are always getting shortchanged. And yes, even on this podcast. So chapter two titled Mexico Will Poison Us. There's this guy, Wilmot, David Wilmot. He's a PA representative. And he sees there's going to be this war to take land from Mexico. And he's like, look, we can't have slavery there. He's a Northern Democrat. And they're they're actually called barn burners because they're Northern Democrats. Democrats that are opposed to slavery are called barn burners because they're willing to burn down their barn or to save it or something. I forget, whatever. Um, so he's not opposed to slavery more for humanitarian reasons, more for just like internal political power that he doesn't want the Southern Dems to have more power than Northern Dems, Democrats. So it isn't, let's get into the arguments for and against slavery so we can move on to other things. McPherson lays it out pretty clearly, you know, and he says that the arguments for and against slavery isn't just like, Hey, human bondage is bad. So slavery is bad. Or, hey, blacks are inferior. So, you know, 
this makes sense that they should be slaves. I mean, there's elements of that, and there's definitely people that make those arguments, but the free labor anti-slavery argument goes like this. The, the main point, it's kind of a capitalist point, is that free labor is more efficient than slave labor because people are motivated by wages and ambition for upward mobility rather than being whipped and coercion and all that stuff. Workers are going to be more productive and business will be more profitable if we have free labor everywhere. We'll have more wealth, generate you know, more ac- economic activity. Then there's the slavery is bad for whites argument. Slavery undermines the dignity of manual work. And so by associating it with servility and degrading white labor, where bondage existed. Wait, did I say that right? Um, meaning, this is like, a black guy does that work. I can't do that. Black guys are dumb and bad. I don't want to be associated with them. They're putting a, they're hoeing the field. They're putting a nail in a piece of wood. This is degrading. This is what blacks do. So um, that's the other argument. Then, you know, slavery inhibits education and social improvements and keeps poor whites as well as slaves in ignorance. You know, education's dangerous, guys. Can lead to slave rebellions. So the basic idea is slavery keeps everyone in poverty and represses the development of a diversified economy as well. So slavery needs to be kept out of the new territories. This is the, you know, anti-slavery argument. So free labor can thrive there based on the previous things I just said. You paying attention? Okay. Um, there's also this racist argument of like, uh, can we just keep blacks where they are? I don't want them going to like new places. I don't want them in my town. I don't want them here. I don't want them in the new territories. I want my son to go out west so he can have a farm and you know, I don't want him to compete against uh, some southern guy with his black slaves because then he won't be able to compete with that. Um, so I think like in the early America, pre, pre-1776 and even post, slavery was not, was known. Everyone's like, you know, slavery's bad, but this is how it is, okay? And we'll figure it out in the future. I mean, how are we going to harvest all these crops and stuff? But by 1830, McPherson says... The growing world demand for cotton helped change this whole ideology thing. And it kind of cemented slavery as a good thing for this. No, not a good thing. How do I say it? Southerners sort of just, and everyone's saying like, no, slavery is a good thing. It's a big deal. It's the backbone of our economy. God wills it. The idea of it being bad just is not there anymore. For some, the economy's kicking butt. And uh, people start to make arguments for slavery more vigorously than they used to. This is post-1830. The cotton boom and all that jazz. Slavery is a great moral, social, and political blessing. It's a blessing to the slave and a blessing to the master. I don't... Excuse me for the burp. I don't know if Jefferson Davis said that, but I have a quote from the book there. Um... So these people say, like, it first civilized the African savage, and second, it provided them with cradle-to-grave security. Now, this is sort of true. What well, is true? Element of truth. Kernel of truth that they say contrasted favorably, favorably with the miserable poverty of the free labor in Britain and 
you know, the northern United States. So think the Industrial Revolution, ugly living conditions, factories, people working all the time, dangerous, dangerous conditions, injuries, people getting their arms chopped off, uh, disease, unsanitary living conditions. Now, it's not that bad because it's still, we're not like 1890s, but in Britain, the Industrial Revolution is going a little faster, so there might be some of that. Still, it's hard living uh, going from farm to factory. All right. Um, okay. They also say, you know, the pro-slavery, you know, this releases whites from the menial tasks, as we said, and it elevates white labor from degrading competition from free Negro labor, um, as we said. And most interesting to me is the sort of strange utopian idea of uh, slavery. Uh, they say, like, rids us of class conflict amongst whites. So everybody's sort of equal because blacks are doing all the work. So I don't think there's any evidence for that, but some say this. Um, but the argument goes on, and then they say, like, well, there are an upper class group of gentlemen to cultivate the arts and literature and hospitality and public service, and it just creates a better society than the vulgar, competitive, capitalist, you know, rat race, Yankee way of life. And, you know, I don't, arts and culture seems to be better in the North. There's much more literature which the Southerners were kind of trying to create some cultural institutions and promoting literature, but everybody's reading authors from the North and stuff like that at the time. Okay, um, that seems like a good place to take a break. Take a quick musical break, and then we're going to wrap up the show by heading south of the border. And I'm not talking the Mason-Dixon line. Heading south, let's talk about Latin America. What? What are you talking about, Paul? Yeah. Battle cry of freedom, the Civil War era, James McPherson, we're going Latin America. Yes, along with Mexico, Southerners were interested in acquiring more slave territory, not only west, but south. Manifest destiny, baby. This is our land, it's our destiny, because America's great, and God says so. So Polk, who's president, Polk, we're not, I wonder if this is the guy that, if he has any association with the speakers, Polk speakers, but he's president from 45 to 49. Um, he was a one-termer on purpose, by the way. Interesting. Uh, blah, blah, blah. He offers Spain 100 million for Cuba. Yep. Hold on a second. Let me take a sip of this coffee. I like that, Josh, if you're still listening. Spain rejects it. Southerners see this as like, you know, they want to expand into Latin America because they see growth for political power. If they got Cuba, they'd get 13 to 15 more representatives in Congress. Jefferson Davis is all about Cuba. He's like, we must have Cuba. Must have, quote. Then there's this Cuban soldier who goes to New York City, Narcasio Lopez. He goes to New York and says, look, I'll get Cuba for you. 
just give me some just give me some uh, generals and military dudes and we'll do it he asked Jefferson Davis and I guess Jefferson Davis is like hemming and hawing like eh I'm not really a fighting type no not me he asked Robert E. Lee Robert E. Lee's like mm, nah I don't want to do that so he does it himself but he goes with uh, he goes to Mississippi this guy John Qu- Quitman the governor backs him he says yeah let's do it man let's go to Cuba I'll fund you I'll support you get 600 men they go there to go to some state of in Cuba burn the governor's mansion but ultimately they're defeated they get sent back to the United States they're tried three times for violating like neutrality laws and stuff and uh, hung jury all time so they're dropped and people in the south are like yeah these guys were cool I'm not convicting them we need to get Cuba um so they go back again, this time with another guy, William Crichton of Kentucky. He's a nephew of Attorney General. Why am I mentioning his name? I have no idea. It's mentioned in the book. He ends up getting executed. They get captured. There's 440 men. They go there. This is just a little side here. Um, they kill Lopez and Crichton, public execution, like 50 of them. 160 are sent back to Spain. You know, this is like... Uh, kind of like modern day stuff if you think about what's happening with the beheadings and all that but then President Fillmore Mallard Fillmore no Millard Fillmore at the time he actually negotiates the release of uh, 160 of these prisoners from Spain so you know that was a good thing I guess depends on your views then Pierce is elected let me tell you something about Franklin Pierce you don't need to know anything about him forget him forget about him he's stupid I shouldn't say stupid. I think his daughter died, and he was sad about that and drank a lot. But I will say this. He does share my birthday, November 23rd. And I've known that my entire life because we used to have this map when I was growing up, and it had all the presidents and their birthdays. And he was the only one that I saw that was born November 23rd. And I saw he was only in there for one year. He was a Democrat, and he was a dud. So what are you going to do? But he offered, remember, uh, Polk offered Spain $100 million. Pierce is like, listen, Spain, we really want Cuba. I'll give you $130 million for it. So Spain thinks about it, and they say no. You know, what are you going to do? You know, I need to drink some of this coffee. Um, this, episode's <laughs> this episode's getting kind of long, right? Has anyone bought this book yet and reading along, The Battle Cry of Freedom? Okay, we're going to wrap it up. I just got one more little story to tell you that I found interesting. And I've known about this for a while. William Walker, do we know about him? Have you guys seen the 1985 movie with Ed Harris? Okay, so... Then we have this little shit... Sorry for the swearing. This little shit William Walker. Yeah, he's five foot five, 125 pounds. Very interesting figure in American history. Simply put, he was an American that went to Nicaragua in the 50s, declared himself president, reinstituted slavery, and was ultimately executed there. Actually, I think in Honduras, but there's a film about him, like I said, it was in the 80s, with starring Ed Harris. But let me back up. So he's this little guy, he's from Nashville, he graduates from the University of Nashville at age 14, then goes to U of Penn, becomes a doctor at 19, then goes to New Orleans, becomes a lawyer. I mean, this is like stuff, who knows if it's true. 
then goes to California during the gold rush boom and becomes a journalist, attacking crime and inspiring the vigilante movement in San Francisco. And yes, that's like a real thing, the vigilante movement in San Francisco. And uh, look it up on Wikipedia if you want. It's basically, the town went from like 900 people to 200,000 between 1848 and 1856. So there was a lot of crime and corruption and people were like, look, shit's going bad. We need to like get some law and order here. Old West style. But San Francisco, so... I don't know how many gays and cultural icons there were in uh, San Francisco in the 1840, late 40s, 50s, but, uh, you know, that's what it's... There was nothing Google there either, but that's another thing. Maybe I'm drinking too much coffee. Anyways, Walker's all about being the man, trying to conquer foreign lands. He goes First, he goes with a, a group of, like, 40 people to an area of Mexico and tries to conquer that. Um... That fails miserably. People start starving and uh, getting sick. He surrenders. He's tried and acquitted in like eight minutes. People are like, who cares? No. Then uh, there's this... There's an interesting relationship with the U.S. and Nicaragua because the Vanderbilt, Cornelius Vanderbilt, has a company down there called the Accessing Transit Company. So it's because Nicaragua is a pretty thin spot in the hemisphere. It's... um a way to get goods from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And so he had like a lot of horses and stuff like that traveling things from the Atlantic to the Pacific. This is before the Panama Canal. And there's a big river, there's a big lake there, so it makes it kind of easy. Anyways, there's like 15 presidents in six years in this at this time. So a lot of instability. The U.S. is there, um, shipping commerce. Walker goes down to Nicaragua as a can you help get control of the place a little bit? Work with the rebels. Let's let's have some stability or some sort. Um, and let me just read this. Uh, yeah, people are so like goods are transported by stagecoach over the narrow strip of the uh, land there. Mm-hmm-hmm. So in 1854, there's like a civil war in Nicaragua. Mercenaries, Walker, who's one of them. And, he, and then he becomes the leader of, like, the one of the uh, rebel groups. And Pierce, like, recognizes him as, like, the commander. President Pierce, the guy that was born November 23rd. Then he declares himself president. Walker's like, you know what? I'm good enough to run this place. I'm president. And you know what? He, You can read his book online, William Walker's book. Uh, you could scroll through it somewhere. He's a big racist. But most people were at that time, so can't really hold it against him. But I do. Because some people weren't. Let's keep that in mind. Let's put a pause here. There were people back then that were mo- that were that had better morals and values and judgment of the world than a lot of our fellow man today. So, you know, the Walt Whitmans and the uh, Frederick Douglass and John Brown to some extent... I don't know. He's kind of a goofball, but anyways, what was I saying again? Oh yeah, Walker says, "Hey," and he kind of sees he's not the biggest like pro-slavery uh, racist guy, but he sees it as a way to get him power and form an alliance with people. So he says, "Hey, in the name of the white race, I now offer Nicaragua to you and your slaves. Come down here, help me out." But by May first, eighteen fifty-seven, the Latin Americans can't agree on anything. That's, that's not a right statement to say. 
The people in that region, Nicaragua, they're fighting amongst themselves. The one thing they do know is they don't like the Americans and they don't like William Walker. So they unite and they attack him. They capture him. He surrenders. They send him back to the United States. And that's where he should have stayed. He tries. Oh, he gets tried too, by the way. They, uh, what happens? He gets tried for violating the treaty, all that stuff. He gets acquitted. 10 to 2. Big hero in the South. Stay with me, guys. We're almost done. You can hear the great ending music. <laughs> so he tries. This is funny. I think it is funny, even though it ends in his death. He tries to go back three, two more times. Once he gets captured. The third time his boat, or the, the third time his like, boat hits a reef and he almost drowns and gets saved. Then he tries to go back a fourth time. You know, and guess what happens? He gets captured, but instead of being sent back to the United States... You know what? This guy's metal. I think it was the British that captures him. This guy's causing problems. He's always over down here. Let's, uh, we'll just send him back to the Latin Americans. And they rightfully execute him. Um, and so let's finish there. We'll probably be done with Latin America in this book. Who knows where, uh, James McPherson is gonna lead us, though. Anyways, uh... Let me know if you're reading this book. You can always email me at prcshow at gmail.com or my real email, prcooley at gmail.com. Hope you guys like this episode, and uh, I'm going to keep trying to read this book and talk about it. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. on Facebook at facebook.com slash PRC show or follow us on Tumblr at prcshow.tumblr.com. All of these episodes can be found at soundcloud.com slash PRC show. Your host is Paul Robert Cooley Jr. Technological consultant, sound design, host curation, and music production is also by Paul Robert Cooley. Emotional support brought to you by the roommates of Salvador and Kate G. Executive producer Josh Ferris, all labors donated. Thanks for listening.